Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. We're kicking off the first of a three-part special on Heist, a docu-series chronicling three of the biggest heists in modern American history through in-depth interviews with the people who pulled them off. Think about it. If you had an opportunity to steal, like if you work in a bank with a vault wide open with nobody seeing you, are you going to do it if you don't get caught? A $100 million heist? Who isn't interested? <laughs> Miami Airport was the scene of one of the largest heists in U.S. history. Four kids from Cuba. This is it. The American dream. The armored truck was packed with more than $3 million. We were like Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> the bourbon theft of the decade. Well over a million dollars. I know a guy that could get stuff. I was that guy. For today's episode, I'm joined by Derek Donin, the executive producer and director of Sex, Magic, Money, Murder. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch both episodes of Sex, Magic, Money, Murder before listening on. 21-year-old Heather Tallchief felt lost in life when she was swept off her feet by prison poet and paroled murderer Roberto Solis. Hypnotized by Roberto's dangerous allure and practice of, quote, sex magic, she became a part of the largest armored truck robbery in Las Vegas history, taking off with over $3 million. Here I am, 22 years old, being whisked away with the man I love for $3 million. It is a fantasy dream that was a reality back in 1993. Holy cow. Derek, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I want to know how this story came your way. This Heather Tallchief story is completely fascinating. I hadn't heard about it before. How did you hear about it, and how did you end up making a doc about it? We started on a sort of a simple premise, which is, you know, we've all thought about pulling off the big score, right? We've all, we all are sort of enchanted by these heist movies and we walk away from them asking ourselves and asking our friends what it would be like if we found ourselves with that kind of opportunity. Could we pull it off? Do we have the ingenuity? But for me and for our team, the only way that it would have been really interesting to explore that is if we could get access to the people who pulled it off. From day one, that was sort of our guiding light. So early in the process, we started reaching out to different folks um, and kind of pretty quickly started just making connections with some of these heisters and getting interest in giving people a platform to tell their story in their own words. I can't remember exactly where I found Heather's story, but I remember reading about it, just jumping off the page. And I ended up reaching out to her lawyer, Bob Axelrod, and he gets a lot of these kinds of requests. He has historically over the years. And Heather at one point just said, stop coming to me with these. I don't want to do any press. I don't want to do any interviews. I'm done telling my story. So I sort of had to form a relationship with Bob first. 
you know, and earn his trust before he felt comfortable even bringing it to Heather and giving it to her for consideration. Now, I do say in the intro that people should watch the series before they listen to this. And I just want to give another warning. I'm about to spoil like a very crucial element, but I can't not talk about it. So pause, watch, and then come back if you have not yet. I really want to talk to you about the fact that we have this first person interview with Heather throughout the documentary. And at the end, you reveal that it's actually an actress playing Heather, but you have recreated it exactly the interviews that you did with her. So it's her words coming out of somebody's mouth. Yeah. First of all, that is hard to pull off and actually fool the audience. And I was completely fooled. So okay. kudos to you. Thank you. That's good. Also, Lisa is an incredible actress. Lisa's her name, correct? Lisa Lord. Yeah, she's amazing. Unbelievable. So talk about that decision. You say that you did talk to Heather, but how did you arrive at that as the right solution to this conundrum where she didn't want to be on camera? But it's obviously her story. It is for sure. And of course, as you know, as you see at the end, we did shoot the real interview with Heather. Um, you know, we did it over two full days and we edited with the real interview all the way up through, I'd say, a fine cut, you know, up until when we shot the recreations and even a little bit after. And once we really sort of knew which lines were gonna stay in the film, I'd say even further than a fine cut, like we, we took it right up until the point that we basically knew what the film was, what lines were staying and which ones weren't. And it was only at that point that we brought Lisa in and filmed with her. And Heather just has this incredible spirit. She's sort of one of a kind, you know, she's really charismatic. She talks with her hands, she's brash, but sweet. So finding somebody that could channel that spirit, but also make it her own performance. I didn't want her to watch the interview and feel like she had to mimic all of the intonation because then I felt like it probably wouldn't be natural. And to me, you know, having it feel natural, having it feel like it was a real interview, you know, I didn't want the audience to have that in their head. And we did consider other options for a while. You know, we considered... AI, you know, like <laughs> face mapping somebody else onto Heather. Oh, you know, we, we we considered a few a few alternatives, and there is even a sort of a last minute plea to Heather to reconsider. But um, ultimately, of course, I had to respect her decision because it's about protecting her safety. There's a well-known TV news clip that's still on YouTube somewhere of a reporter who wasn't able to get access to a courtroom, so they used puppets to recreate the courtroom <laughs> scenes. I'm glad you didn't do that. Oh, God. That probably would have been a little much. Um, so for the purposes of our conversation, I'm going to refer to the Lisa sections as Heather, only because that's the experience of the viewer. Yeah. So at the beginning of the series, Heather basically says to the camera, this is a love story really interesting way to go into a story that plays out very differently than a love story. So can you unpack that a little bit? Is, is that still her perspective? In some ways, yes. I mean, she talks about, and I, I, I pointed this out to her actually in one of our later interviews, that she still talks about Solis with this reverence and this romanticism. I think it was a time in her life that obviously didn't end well for her. Obviously, you know, when, when she had Dylan, it just sort of snapped everything into perspective and she realized he was not the person that she thought he was. But I think there was a time that was sort of magical for her. You know, everyone sort of remembers their first true love, you know, that young love, that magic. And um, I don't 
think she's really experienced it to that level since then. You know, I, I said, you know, the way you talk about Solis versus the way you talk about the man who ended up raising Dylan is very different. And she acknowledged that, you know, of course, there are a lot of themes that the show explores. Obviously, I think he did take her for a ride a little bit. And there was a lot of psychological manipulation involved. But I do think there was a real connection that he had real feelings for her, too. He reminds me, at least in her telling of what he was like, quite a bit of, you know, in some of the other series we've talked about on this show, even those like very dynamic, like cult leader personalities, somebody who just like knows how to connect with somebody, knows how to pull them in, knows how to make them make their whole life about him. And even down to this idea of sex magic, which correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like sex. Like what else is there going on with the with the whole idea around the sex magic, which was part of his lore for her? Totally. Yeah. She, she even uses that word cult, you know, she cult leader. She says it was sort of it was like a cult. It was like a cult of one, you know. So it's interesting that you tapped into that very much so. Um, and yeah, I mean, the sex magic was a big part of their relationship. You know, she was obviously struggling uh, with addiction when she met him and he helped her through that. Um, but they still experimented with psychedelic drugs together and they would have these sex magic rituals where they would sort of use sex, sort of the power of the orgasm, the energy that, that is released to try and manifest what they wanted in the world. And in this case, it was to get a lot of money to pull off this heist and to get away with it. And I even remember saying at some point in the interview, you know, it could be argued that the sex magic worked. You guys did get away with it. And she said, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yeah, there was really something there, like a little Sting and Trudy Styler kind of energy going on. Um, so one of the things that I also thought was really interesting, as you talked about, was when she met Roberto, she was at a really low point in her life. And it's very interesting to me that you have her father, Fred, in the documentary, mm -hmm. too, and you really get his perspective on her childhood, what she was like, you know, the sort of break in their family when he got together with a woman who apparently didn't like Heather very much, and that's how she ended up where she ended up. Can you just talk about those difficult conversations about a difficult childhood when you actually know you're talking to the parent as well? How do you balance that? How do you get them both on film telling their story and have it be as measured and lovely as it ends up being in the documentary? Yeah, I mean, I actually have a lot of respect for Fred. You know, he's been sober for more than 40 years now. He's He owns up to all of his shortcomings and all of his mistakes. And he has a very close relationship with Heather now, you know? And I think it's pretty clear from watching the way he talks about her, how deeply he, he loves her and cares for her. It doesn't excuse his behavior, you know, when she was young uh, by any means. But, you know, I think you have to give people a space to, to redeem themselves a little bit and to become better people and to right their wrongs. And I think he he's done that, you know, and he's continued to show up for her. And, and she obviously really cares for him too, you know? And so the process of, of sort of getting there with documentary subjects, it's sort of different for everybody, but at the end of the day, it's just about sort of spending time with them. You know, there's a long period of time before I show up with a camera that I'm having these kinds of conversations. I'm showing up where they live. I'm hanging out or breaking bread and I need to sort of open myself up and be vulnerable to them too, so that they can feel like it's a two way road and they can feel comfortable talking to me. It really comes across that you put that work in. I'll be honest because very often the family conversations in, in documentaries like this 
are very often hard for me to watch, you know, because there's the truth of each person is coming with what they believe is the truth always. And here it really seemed like they were telling a story together, even though Mm -hmm. you interviewed them separately. And that's just very hard to pull off. Uh, I have a question about some of the more colorful characters in the documentary. In particular, I think maybe my two favorites were Scott and Steve, uh, the two guys that Heather worked with at Loomis. Their recollections of her are astonishing and uh, seem like the basis for your recreations that you use in the film. But can you just talk about what really what they remembered in the short time they worked with her? Yeah, you know, <laughs> they are fascinating individuals and and I'm really happy that we sort of got them in a room together. I think, you know, we let them sort of play off each other a little bit in the interview. Um, But, you know, they, I think the way they introduce her is, you know, I I think she was hired because she was young and she was pretty right off the bat. That's, that's how they introduce Heather, which, you know, now having gotten to know Heather a little bit is just sort of strips her of her humanity a little bit, Mm. but I think, you know, they they still feel really burned by what she did. You know, they felt like she put them in a very precarious place, a very dangerous place. They're walking around with millions of dollars without their backup, without anywhere to go um, in Vegas and, um, you know, in some dark uh, garages and, and alleyways and things like that. And the sting of that is still there. And I think they still harbor some resentment and, um, so now they're able to talk about it a little bit more loosely, but I think you still feel that resentment in the way that they talk about her. They talk about her being a notoriously bad driver. Is that something that she admitted to as well, or is that just their take on working with her? Oh, uh, no. Heather 100% admitted that. <laughs> I love to hear it. I yeah. really do. Yeah. The recreation of her, like, oops moments in the truck were amazing oh uh, yes yeah so fun no i mean that we are in pursuit of the truth and so of course you know i, I have to ask her about that kind of stuff too but no she she fully admitted every you know i didn't know my way around vegas i was a bad driver i had just gotten my license i think she got it so she could do this job mm. so yeah absolutely there's truth to that Tell me what it was like to interview uh, the Bulldog, a.k.a. FBI agent Joe Dushek. Um, ultimately, these law enforcement officers you talked to were, were unsuccessful in their attempts to solve this crime. So what was it like doing that interview with that as sort of the basis for the conversation? Yeah, you know, especially early on, I think, when, you know, I, I asked him, you know, why, why are you the Bulldog? And he said, I don't think I've ever had somebody get away from me. And I'm like, well, we're here interviewing you about the person who did get away. I just found that really fascinating. Um, he's, he's like the sweetest guy. And that's why I think the nickname is so funny, because he's so calm and genuine and sweet, but he has this nickname that says otherwise. But also just, it was just so, you know, it's always fun going into people's spaces and seeing the way that they live. And, and, you know, his house is kind of out of the early eighties, you know, plush pink carpet and gaudy gold frames and huge pieces of art covering the walls, um, you know, and, and a lot of memorabilia from his work that he's obviously very proud of. It was really cool to be in his space while I got to talk about this case that he still obviously thinks a lot about. I think he's very hopeful that the show might help us find Solis. Hmm. Of course, Heather seems to believe Solis is dead. Do you think that she really does believe that? Yeah, yeah. I, I got the sense from everything she said. She wasn't hiding anything or she didn't really have incentive to lie or to try and 
obfuscate her true feelings. Um, so when she said that she thinks he's dead, she gives, you know, she give, gives a reason, hmm. you know, look at his lifestyle. Um, yeah. He wasn't slowing down and people like that usually it doesn't end well for them, but she doesn't know. And I think that's why she wanted to play it safe and it's not worth taking the risk for her. I want to talk about the mechanics of the heist itself a little bit because it was exceptionally well planned, a very obviously small crew of just two people who it almost had like in miniature like Ocean's Eleven type feel with them renting that building in which they you know pretended to be an armored car service shop and all that stuff. But this was mostly him, right? I mean, did she even go get the job there at his urging? Because he had a beef with this company. Yeah, although... From my understanding, he had it in his head that they were going to do this. I don't think he targeted Loomis specifically. I think he got her applications to several armored car companies in Vegas and helped her fill them out. And that's the one where she ended up getting hired first. That's my understanding. I think it was a little bit more coincidence that it was Loomis. Although once she gets hired, he uses that as fuel. As he says to her, I have to get back what they took from me. You know, they took 20, more than 20 years of my life away from me, which of course was absolutely earned on his part. He, it was a botched robbery um, in 1967 in which he ended up killing somebody Hmm. and he got a double life sentence for that. He's hardly the victim in this case, but he used that as motivation. He used that as part of his manipulation, I think, with, with Heather that, you know, they sort of deserve what's coming to them. Yeah. It's amazing to me that he kind of went back to exactly the same kind of crime that ended in the murder that got him convicted. And it's also amazing to me that he did that after developing this reputation in prison as being this great artist and getting this community of poets Mm -hmm. to basically help him get out because he had earned this reputation as being this great writer. Can you talk about that group of people that petitioned to get him out? Yes, of course. And and also, I just want to add, interestingly... Heather told me after she left Solis, a little while after, sort of after they lost touch with each other, she heard the news of another armored car robbery in Amsterdam. Hmm. And of course, there's no way to prove it was him or not. But the way it was described in the paper, she was like, this has to be him. This has to be Solis. Who knows for sure. But her thinking is he continued doing this exact style robbery even after she was out of the picture. Um, But yeah, going back to Folsom, the one thing I'll say is I I sort of really appreciated the fact that he had started this poetry writing club in in prison and that the inmates were given this creative outlet and that these these poets, these sort of world-class poets were coming in to read their work and critique their work. And he was able to publish several books um, from behind bars. And then, of course, I think this was all kind of part of his master plan, right? And and it worked, you know, he, he gathered the support of this community of, of artists and poets to make a, a convincing plea to the parole board to let him go. And, and it worked. And we actually ended up talking to the poet laureate of San Francisco, a guy named Jack Hirschman. Of course, it didn't end up making it into the film, but he, he sort of looks back fondly on, uh, on those days and on his short relationship with Solis and didn't know about the heist. He found out about the heist during the interview. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, insane. It, I mean, his, he just like could not believe all of the history that had happened since he helped get Solis out of jail. 
Yeah, it really is unbelievable to me that that he wouldn't then know because you would think there would be like a big I told you so situation going Absolutely. on after that. But it was a different time, as they say, pre-social media, right? True. Um, I, I love in, in those uh, in those letters, because, of course, we read all of them. My favorite one, which we, we have in the film, is he's like a Gandhi without disciples. I mean, that's like <laughs> the kind of language they were using to describe this guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were his disciples. They just didn't realize it at the moment the time, yeah, obviously, it, because it, he was sort of the, the first minute. They were the first people he manipulated while he was there. It, it plays right into what you were saying before about this cultish leader, this cultish figure. You know, he was he obviously had that charm. And, and he, he as you say, he had sort of disciples in prison. Right. He, he's able to sort of build a following wherever he goes. He's this enigmatic character. Now, Heather's story turns from, I don't want to say light, but a little bit more whimsical, energetic, uh, adventure-packed. It it takes a turn when they're in the warehouse after they've actually driven the truck away and stolen the money. And she realizes there's no going back, and she suddenly sees a different side of Solis. Um, Can you talk about what it was like filming that and why you thought it was important to include that scene? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the pivotal moment in her journey, because up until then, it really was this Bonnie and Clyde love affair. And I think she had this romanticized vision of what was going to happen after the heist. She was going to pull into this warehouse and he was going to wrap her up in his arms and it was going to be this magical fairy tale riding off into the sunset. And instead, he rips her out of the truck, strips her naked, takes her gun and and it's all business, you know, and, and she just sees this very dark side of him and suddenly realizes when it's too late, she's already in it now, that he has her gun, he has the money, he might not even have a need for her anymore. And certainly that's the way the FBI was thinking too, that now that he has all of this, he could just kill her and get rid of her and one less person to worry about. And I think she sort of has this realization, this oh shit moment, you know, after it's, a, it's too late. I'm just butt naked in a fucking garage with a man with my gun. That moment of no return is standing there with your britches down, trying to put on a costume. Meanwhile, a man convicted of murder is in possession of $3 million and a loaded fire in a fucking closed garage that moment of fear hits you and you're like fuck what was interesting for me as a viewer my perspective on rooting for her which I did by the way during this whole documentary Mm -hmm. switched from rooting for her as the perpetrator of this quote perfect crime you know this person who was at this low point in her life and got sort of swept up to rooting for her really as somebody who was under the thrall of a manipulative kind of scary person and that scene was what later made me feel like a tremendous amount of relief for her when we hear that she was able to live this sort of second life in Amsterdam does that make sense totally I have a I mean I have a ton of respect for Heather she's had to restart her life from scratch two times I get asked like what's the most surprising thing about making this show and I think the thing that a lot of us don't think about when we think about whether we could be able to pull off a heist like this is what happens after what happens when you get away with it you can't talk to your family anymore you can't talk to your friends you have to change your identity her own son didn't even know her real name you know her own son didn't get to know 
his grandpa, his uncles and aunts, you know, you, you have to live under this shadow of secrecy for the rest of your life. And that weighs heavy. That's a heavy burden to carry. And um, she restarts her life after leaving Solis. And then of course, ultimately doesn't find that true freedom until she turns herself in and then gets out of jail and has to restart her life from scratch all over again. So I think for her, it's this kind of constant search for self, constant pursuit of freedom. And I'm warmed that she has finally found it. Yeah, I am too. It was very interesting. First of all, I will just say I was very disappointed to hear that she only had $18,000 when she left him. It seems like there should have been more for her to start her new life, especially since she had the baby. Um, But also what could, I think, have appeared to be a very normal, domestic, kind of suburban life that she led. She had this cloud hanging over her, not just the fact that she committed the crime, but she had this timeline of this passport like ticking downward she had a limited time where she would be able to like be a documented person in the world and that it resonated with me because I know that there are people who deal with documentation issues in the world today and you know the consequences are are different but still there's just this idea of that document itself is the emblem of the pressure you know what I mean totally one of the first documentaries I made was a, a film called the dream is now about dreamers, about undocumented youths. Um, And it was right as DACA was passed. So it was a huge relief, obviously, to all of a sudden have status and and not have something hanging over your head. But of course, the threat that it could be revoked at any moment. I mean, imagine living with that kind of fear every day that you've, you've now done the right thing, you're out in the open, but a new administration could come in, as we saw, and threaten to take that away to take away your legal status in, in the only place you've ever called home. So yeah, there's a lot of that with, with Heather. I think she didn't think about it at first. As you say, it's different. She had status, she had a new identity, a valid passport. She was able to get work to put her son in school. But then, yeah, as those years started ticking away, all of a sudden it became a very real threat. And they went and tried to find you know, the, the real Donna Eaton. And of course they weren't able to. And then it was, yeah, then it was really this ticking clock of what do we do when this expires? We have two options. One, we go somewhere else. Um, you know, we have to restart a new life again, somewhere else with a whole new identity, a whole new set of identities, or we face the music. And you know, she looked at Dylan and said, it's not fair to him. I can't, you know, he didn't even really realize that he was living a life as a fugitive, obviously, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. to now all of a sudden have to tell your 10-year-old, like, we're changing your name. You can't tell anybody. You can't talk to anybody who you've known your entire life anymore. We can't even visit Amsterdam again. That's not a fair thing to put him through. Right, right. So I, I just can't imagine being in, in her situation. Having I'm a, I'm a father now. I have a two-year-old. And having to say goodbye to your son, I mean, it just, I, I don't know if I could do it. I don't think I'd have the strength. Oh, absolutely not. And I think it shows a tremendous amount of fortitude that she knew she had to and she did. Yeah. So how about Dylan? I was very surprised to see him uh, pop up in the film. Yeah. Is he having the normal life that she kind of dreamed that he might be able to have if she turned herself in? Totally. Yeah. He's actually, he graduated from college uh, right as we were starting this project and he's an EDM artist. Wow. And he teaches. He teaches music. So he he does these online classes and he has a pretty big following. His YouTube and SoundCloud have pretty big followings. So he's sort of 
carved his own little niche in the world. And he's a really well-grounded kid. And um, I really enjoyed getting to meet and talk to Dylan. And they have a great relationship. You know, every time I'm with Heather, they're texting all day. and <laughs> They're very close. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, it's one of those things where you just want to know that after you watch a story like this, and you very often can't. Yeah. So it's a joy to be able to talk to you and ask you that question and find out that that's the case. Uh, totally. As a parent of, of kids that age myself, um, I was really hoping that they'd been able to continue to have a relationship afterward. Yeah. I'm curious a little bit about the legal process when she came back. So her lawyer basically, I don't want to say smuggled her into the country, but encouraged her to come on these in, with this fake passport. And she talks about the acting job she did at the airport, mm-hmm. uh, pretending that she was going to see Oasis, which is a really funny detail if you were alive during the Oasis era. Totally. Um, but yeah, so she, they basically talked to the media. They sort of like made it very public that she was turning herself in with the idea that that would help her. You had a relationship with him, as you said. Does he feel like he handled that well uh, in 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 retrospect? Yeah, he's really proud of the outcome of the case. Um, and that was, and he's very open about it. You know, that was all strategy. Because it was a high profile case, public perception could have an impact on her sentencing. He wanted her to be a sympathetic figure. And I think in many ways she is. I mean, it wasn't a huge stretch. It's not like he had to fabricate <laughs> the story. I mean, the, you know, the story that he told is, generally the the same story that we're telling, you know, and um, he wanted her to sort of get the credit of turning herself in and the place that the crime was committed. If she had gotten caught up in an airport and Interpol and had to go through an extradition process and she was caught as opposed to turning herself in, you know, it could have affected her sentencing in a big way. So yeah, it was very much a part of his strategy. And there was even more to it, you know, that we didn't have time to get into. He hired a psychologist as an expert witness to really talk about the dynamics of the relationship between she and Roberto. Can you talk about that? I'd love to hear more about that. Um, Yeah, I mean, just the effects of the hypnosis and the psychological manipulation, the fact that she wasn't fully acting under her own agency. Of course, he wasn't kidnapping her. He wasn't making her do anything, but she was manipulated in a big way. She was in a very fragile place in her life. Obviously we go into a lot of that backstory and there's even more that we don't talk about. You know, when she's 16, her father had actually split up with Cindy for a while. The woman who was in many ways abusive to Heather, they split up and then they got back together. And, I, and that was really painful for Heather. You know, she was 16 years old. Her dad gets back with her abuser and she said, I, I'm, I, I can't, I can't be around her anymore. And she left, she went across the country and found her real mom in San Francisco. And her mom at that point was struggling with her own addictions, you know, so she she just can't win. She can't find peace. She can't find that comfort. She talked about this in the interview that she would, her mom was helping her skip school to do cocaine and smoke weed at 16, 17 years old. And then of course she ends up trapped in, in her own cycle of addiction. I think that was a lot of what Mr. Axelrod wanted to unpack, you know, all of the circumstance that led to this moment. It wasn't just, you know, your average person, you know, wanting to rip off the local casino. You know, there were, there's a lot to consider here. And so I think he was really smart to, to talk about that. And ultimately, given that she was looking at over 25 years, um, the fact that he got most of those charges thrown out and that she only got five, I think was something he was, yeah, ultimately really proud of. 
I mean, I look at the relationship itself. To me, from the outside, it looks like trafficking. I mean, he groomed her. He coerced her into doing something illegal. He basically controlled where she was going to be. He made her stay in a hotel room while he brought another woman in and then flew off to St. Martin with that woman. He had all the, held all the cards because he had all the money. And she said a bunch of times there was no way to say no to him. I mean, he was older. He was very experienced, very manipulative. It makes me think, of course, like in a post-Jeffrey Epstein world, like that's what this looks like to me. And I think it's kind of great that the lawyer saw it through that frame, even if she hadn't had a difficult childhood. To me, that is what was happening to her. Does that make sense? Totally. And, I, you know, I, I love that the show sparks this conversation, right? Because it is a lot. Everything that you're saying is true. That said, I don't think Heather would use the word trafficking. I don't think mm. she would say she was trafficked. I think that she felt that she could have left at any time. But that's, I think, part of what you're saying. That's part of that psychological manipulation. You know, and where would she have gone when she left? Ultimately, she did. Um, and he didn't, you know, look, she didn't have to sneak out in the dead of night. You know, he knew she was leaving. He was at peace with it. Um, there wasn't a, a struggle there. There wasn't violence there. Even if the threat of violence was there, she f ultimately did feel comfortable enough that she could walk away with with their son. But yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it, it becomes a, a gray area there. But everything you're saying is true. I mean, she was coerced. She she there was the threat of violence. She did feel trapped for so much of it. She felt like, yeah, she couldn't leave that hotel room. Um, she felt like she had to do everything he said the way he said it. So absolutely, those themes are there. In the series, the crime is referred to more than once as the perfect crime, sort of a cliched expression. But in this case, I think they're referring to the fact that they couldn't solve it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you basically show us, the audience, that even with a perfect crime, it's not perfect. I just did the best I could with what I had to work with. But I'm stuck stuck having to be somebody that I'm not. I'm stuck in this false reality and I wasn't always happy. There's just this heavy burden to carry thinking that you always have to look over your shoulder, you know, and that you can't be in touch with anybody from your past. She has, we, we talked to her high school friends that suddenly lost touch with her. You know, we talked with two of her siblings, with Titus and Elaine, and, um, you know, they, I think they went through a period after the initial grief where, it, you know, they sort of leaned into the mythology of having a, a, a sister who pulled off one of the biggest scores in Vegas history and is living on the run. You know, they went and did a bunch of talk shows. Um, they talked about it with their friends. I think in the back of their minds, they were, you know, they never stopped missing Heather and never stopped worrying about Heather. And on the flip side, of course, you know, Heather could never call home. She could never reconnect with her dad, with her younger um, brothers and sisters. And in fact, there's the story she tells that didn't make it into the movie about this sort of final goodbye she has with her younger brother. You know, he, he's much younger than her at the, at the time. And um, she, of course, knows what's about to happen. She goes in, you know, late at night and, you know, he's supposed to be asleep. So he pretends to be asleep and she, you know, she sort of leans into his bed and gives him a kiss and tells him that she loves him. And then she leaves and he just felt it was kind of strange because that wasn't necessarily 
their relationship. Like they were, they were close, but to come in in the middle of the night and do something like that was a little, you know, it piqued his interest. So he ran over to the window and watched her sort of drive away. And then of course that ends up being this final goodbye. You know, a few days later, she's all over the news and it's this memory that sort of stuck with him the rest of his life and something that she thinks about too. It's, it's just the thing that I think has stuck with me. You know, people always ask me like, what's the thing that has surprised you most? And it's the, the sort of that heavy burden, that heavy toll that it takes to have to live this life on the run and have to live a life now under an assumed identity without being able to have any of those connections that have, you know, with friends and family and all the people that shaped you and helped to make you who you are, they're all out of your life forever now. And um, you can't even go by your own name anymore. In fact, Heather had to use a fake accent when she was in Amsterdam. I was curious about that because the other woman said all the British people knew all the other British people. And I'm like, none of either, neither one of you sound British. What is going on right here? <laughs> well, she, so she is not, she doesn't have the accent anymore. It's, but like, you can kind of hear it when she comes back and she's turning herself in um, and they're interviewing her. She kind of just, her voice has this sort of strange half, accent because it was so ingrained in her that it, it almost took time to unlearn it. But yeah, Meredith, her friend, talks about how there was this sort of constant like head scratching where all the, you know, there's a school for experts. Imagine the, the bravado that you would have to have to, <laughs> to use your fake, your kind of bad fake British accent amongst a school full of moms and dads who come from the UK mm. and they understand, you know, it's like we can hear, especially my wife is from the South. She can hear, you know, and she hears a Southern accent. She's like, oh, that's Alabama. Right. That's Louisiana. That's Texas. That's Georgia. That's like, she can pick apart the nuances of those accents. Of course you can, you know, if that's what you grow up with. And so to, to go and to say that you're from a place and your accent might, you know, that dialect might not exactly match. Uh, that, uh, yeah, that's, that's brave. Takes balls. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, I know you worked on this for a long time, probably a couple years, right? Yeah. And as you were talking about the project to your acquaintances, friends, uh, you know, fellow filmmakers, and you were describing that you were making this documentary about this heist, you know, that was exciting with this very dynamic character at the core of it. You obviously brought a lot more to this, um, you know, with Heather and all the layers to her story. I'm wondering, in those conversations you had, were you thinking like, this is what I want the audience to take away when they watch this? Do you feel like there is a thing and that and that you achieve that with this documentary? It's a nuanced answer, I guess. Um, when I describe the show, I would say it's fun, true crime with a lot of heart. Hmm. As a storyteller, I really only want to make films about people that I love and respect. I'm not interested in essay-driven films that tear people down or that, you know, expose how horrible somebody is. I mean, th there's an element of that to a lot of the work, you know, especially in social justice documentaries that I work on. But I always try and tell it through the lens of the people going through it and the people who I love and respect. And, and I want to take that really seriously. You know, I want to tell their stories with reverence and I want the audience to think a little bit more carefully about the world around them. I want them to explore some of these larger themes. Obviously heist stories are going to be sexy and fun and energetic and fast paced and brash. And I knew that I, I of course I'm playing into that. Of course there's sensationalism here. Um, you know, it's it's the wish fulfillment part of it. You know, that's why we we go watch heist movies and why the genre has been around for over a century. You know, it's there's a bit of a formula to that. And of course, I'm going to play into that as a filmmaker. But 
you know, I want, I wanted to flip true crime on its head. I wanted it to be fun, true crime. I didn't want it to be so dark. Um, I knew that the only way I was interested in doing all of that was if I could put a little medicine with the sugar, you know, if I could, if I could explore some of these larger themes through the eyes of the people who lived it, you know, talk about family, addiction, trafficking, all of the things we're talking about, even if it's in a subtle way, even if it's, if it's something that just makes the audience think a little bit about it, but we're not, you know, beating the audience over the head with that messaging, you know, it's, it's all there under the surface and it's all sort of ripe for conversation. Fun, true crime with a lot of heart. That's certainly how I experienced it. Sex, magic, money, murder. It's the first part of the series heist. Derek, what a pleasure it was talking to you about your film. Rebecca, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to executive producer and director Derek Donine. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for part two of our special coverage of Heist, The Money Plane. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.